0: Heavenly Father, we give you praise this morning and we recognize that you are the giver of every good gift. And we uh, recognize also, Lord, that there's no, no higher calling for us than to be worshipers. And we pray that you would help us today as we contemplate our worship. We pray that you would move us and guide us. So that this might be profitable and useful in our growth in your grace and the knowledge of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Okay, so last, we began a few weeks talking about worship. We're only going to do this for three, at most four weeks, but I hope we keep it to three. Um, And so last week we talked mainly about preparation for worship. And so that we're going to begin to talk about the actual worship service this morning. And um, so I wanted to um, start by just saying that there's a lot of different ways that you can look at the subject of worship. And uh, we're going to look at the elements of worship, the, the pieces, what it's made up of. But before that even more important than the elements of worship is the attitude of worship. The attitudes of worship. And, um, you know, we're we're, uh, supposed to worship from the heart. We talked about that last week. We're, you know, because we're worshiping God, it should be reverent. Um, and and little, with fear and trembling. And, um, and yet, it should be joyful. Rejoice with trembling, so the great line from, um, I think it's uh, Psalm two. And uh, so, and I'm not positive of that, but um, that puts in a little phrase the the sort of uh, remarkable paradox of worship. And um, you know, if you just say joy, then um, you've missed the the magic of it. If you just say trembling, you've missed the magic of it. But it's got to be trembling with joy and joy, joyful trembling. So, um, because first of all, we're in the presence of a holy God, who. You know, makes the foundations of the temple shake. And yet also, he's extended his grace to us in Christ. And we are the recipients of treasures that we don't deserve. And so it's joyful. Um, There are many ways in which our relationship with the Lord is like a child's relationship with his father. Which hopefully has both joy and a little bit of fear. So, when we come to the question of the, or the subject of the worship service, there's not many parts to it, there's not many um, ingredients that the Bible gives us to a worship service. Um, you know, we could make up stuff but uh, but we have always believed that you know we should follow what the bible tells us with regard to what should be happening in a worship service and so what you know not thinking about our worship service but just thinking about the bible what are the elements of worship that we can derive from the bible some specifically from a verse but Some just from the patterns of Scripture. Who who wants to give us one to get started? Singing? Yes, for sure. What else? Prayer? Very good. Reading Reading the Word. And expounding the Word. So, praising God, and that's under um, both singing and prayer, the whole idea of praising. Yeah? There's a little subtle thing here, together. There's something about corporate worship. Yes, it's together. Jason?
1: that's
0: maybe not going to be necessarily think about lot, but that is a form of worship sure yeah and worship of course is a much bigger subject than the corporate gathering of God's people to worship um that's what the second is like what we're focusing on in this time but you're very right that the, that worship is much broader than that and it's something that it involves every aspect of our lives um but in the corporate worship, there's one element that no one's mentioned yet. Mike. Well, I don't know if this is the element you're thinking of, but doesn't it say somewhere? It
2: doesn't come to mind when the book is in, that it needs to be orderly. It shouldn't be chaotic.
0: Well, yes, that's uh, 1 Corinthians 14. But uh, that's not an element of worship. That's a, I'd say, a character of worship. But I know it, it's communion, right? Uh, the sacraments, yes. Yes, the sacraments, which clearly in a uh, n- number of places, but in spe- especially in First Corinthians 11, um, it's clear that that is a part of public worship. So, you have basically these these elements, and they're, they're uh, and there's no special order that is given to us in Scripture of how we're supposed to structure these things together, but there's certain things that are sort of logical, or Makes sense. Um, It makes sense. For instance, that that uh, you know that. Well, let's let's uh, let me break down this a little bit more. Let's take each of these and talk about them a little bit more. Let's talk about prayer. What are the kinds of prayer that we um, that are appropriate for and and uh, you know um, not commanded necessarily, but but fitting and expected maybe in worship. What are the different kinds of prayer? Confession of sin? Thanksgiving? Adoration? Intercession? Okay, so all those are a very appropriate part of worship. And um traditionally worship is seen as a conversation you know we're speaking to God and he's speaking back to us or or the other way around he speaks to us and we speak back to God and so the the worship service goes back and forth it's not just you know one speech that God gives and then our response It's, it's a back and forth um And so the different kinds of prayer, you know, at the beginning when we're, when we, in our service, we praise God and we confess our sin at the beginning. And it makes sense to do that as you're coming to God to remember how it is that you are able to come to God and how you're coming to God in spite of your unworthiness. Because of his grace. And so it's it's acknowledgement of, of our unworthiness and of our sinfulness. Um, and then um, the intercession. You know, typically it, it doesn't seem fitting that you would start the worship service with intercessory prayer. Okay, let's gather together and pray. And you go through all the needs of the congregation—that just doesn't seem like it's like why you focused on your needs before you focus on God and His goodness and grace. So you can see that that even though we're not given the order, there's certain things that just make sense in in terms of the order, um, and and so we try to structure. You know, worship services should be structured in a way that that maintains the conversation aspect, but also is in some kind of a logical order of how that conversation goes. Now, um, let's talk for a moment about um, singing. Um, Singing is sort of unique that it's it might be adoration it might be confession it might even be reading of scripture it can be virtually any element of the worship service but put to song it's sometimes exhortation from the word so it is uh, and so why do we sing? Well, we sing because, in a sense, I think, speaking words is just not adequate for the kind of communication that we have with God. And, and I'm so grateful that God gave us music and one of the reasons he gave us music is so that we can sing to him i mean it's not an accident that that there are so many love songs written and love poems right it's just it's it's just the when you when your communication can't stay in the riverbed and begins to burst it has to go to something better than just I really care about you. you know it goes to poetry and to song, and so it is in our love songs to God now, interestingly, with music, um, there's there are, you know we have to be careful about how we do it because it 's easy when we slip into a mode, like music, to do it the same way that we do music outside the context of worship. So for instance, you know, we have all these popular singers, and we go to concerts, and we go, we listen to their music, and uh, it's it's. Uh, it's a whole world. And we have, we're have we used to that world and we know how to operate in that world. And then we go into the worship and worship music and it's easy to just sort of jump into the same kind of mentality. But worship is very different. Worship is not. For instance, um, one of the things that is very common in just music is i'm not saying it in a negative way but it's showing off showing off your voice showing off your ability to play the guitar or the piano and that's why people buy tickets and come i'm not faulting people who have great talent in those things for for showing it off and having you know and making their living by entertaining people through their music but in worship that's not fitting to use music to show off, right? You, wouldn't, you, don't, you don't want people when the, mu- when the song is over to be saying, wow, that person has an amazing voice or that person has amazing abilities on the piano. You want people to be saying, wow, what a great God we have. So in music in the worship service, attention is to be given to another not to be given to ourselves and so we have to orient our thinking about music in the worship service differently than we're used to in thinking in other contexts Um, not only that but music is something that we do not only individually but corporately and there's a certain dynamic that occurs when people sing together and in the world you generally have the experience of one person singing or a few people singing and everybody else listening But again in worship not that it's I'm not saying it's wrong to have one person sing a song or a choir sing a song but the general point of music and worship is for the congregation to sing to the Lord, so that every worshipper is participating in the worship. Not, you know, I remember going to a. Uh, I haven't been to that many mega churches, but one I went to. I was in California for a general assembly, and I went on a Sunday to a, a mega church that was like a stadium. And uh, it, was, it was like a basketball stadium. It was that big, at least. And uh, so we sat there, and you know, the people on the stage, you know, could have been on TV. They were tremendously gifted in their reading, in their singing, in their performing. Everything was just top-notch. But the people in the pews did virtually nothing. We sat there and we watched what was going on the stage. There was one or two things that we did. I can't remember even what they were. But literally, that's all we did the entire service. And, you know, that's pretty common. But I don't think that's really the direction we want to go in, in worship. Because the whole concept of worship is that it's something people do, not something people watch. And so when it comes to singing, the thrust is, and I'm, again, I'm not saying that it's bad to have individuals singing or choir singing, but the thrust is for the congregation to be singing and singing in worship, not singing as a performance, singing in worship. And so, you know, what's the important thing in, um, in the church music? It's not, you know, everybody learning the parts Although there's nothing wrong with that. But, you know, when, when I'm in Gainesville Community Choir, and, um, it, you know, when the, when the conductor is listening to the music, listening to us sing, he's not listening for whether it sounds pleasing to the ear or not. He's listening to whether we're doing what's on the page. And if we're not doing what's on the page, he'll stop and he'll get us to do So if the basses are singing two different things, he doesn't really care whether it sounds okay or not. He cares that we're not doing, so half of the group is not doing what's on the page. But that's not the concern in worship. And it's not even does it sound good. Although that's important because why are we singing if it's not going to sound good? That's the whole, it's, the, it's words in beauty. So, it should sound good. And if something is so bad that it's distracting everybody's attention from the worship, obviously you've got to stop and deal with it. You know, if if we're singing on a different key than the piano is playing, it's like, okay, stop, we've got to get this together because no one's going to be able to concentrate on worshiping, or not many people anyway, um, unless we get this straight. But... Uh, so it's different than the way that we think about music in the world. Um, now, the way that I there's another aspect of this that I would like to address that has to, with uh, church singing. Um, that has to do with what songs we sing. Obviously, uh, I mean it's a no-brainer that we should sing songs. Well, let me let me ask you. If, if a church is looking for songs to sing, you know, if you're starting a new church and uh, you're, you are you got to pick songs that you can use, put in your repertoire as a congregation. And whether you are familiar with, I mean, whether you are a- alert to this or not, congregations have a repertoire. A group of songs that they're familiar with that they sing and if every week you come and the songs are new that makes it difficult unless you're going to sing them over and over again and become familiar with them it's fine to learn new songs But um, so what are we going to look for when we're looking for, new, for songs to put in a, in a repertoire of a church consistent with scripture very important Singable. A singable song. A singable song for everyone. Right. And it doesn't have to be perfectly singable the first time, but it's got to be something a reasonable person can find singable within a reasonable amount of time. Okay? There are certain songs that are not that way. Right. Very good. What else? Okay. So, here is a a new church and they have a worship leader, okay? And this guy is very talented and he's very talented at composing music. And so he teaches congregations the music that he's written and they enjoy it and they really get into it and pretty soon they sing 50 different songs and they're all written by him. What's the problem with that? I mean, if he's, if he's talented enough, that's not necessarily, um, you know, going to happen. He can give the glory to God. But what about when those people go somewhere else to worship? What about the kids that grow up in that church and then go somewhere else to worship? They don't know any songs. They don't know that every single church in the world is a, is, it has strange music to them. That's not, that's not a good thing. So what I'm getting at is that there's, there's a value to having a repertoire that has overlap with ch- other churches, sister churches in the community and in the nation and in our culture and in the world that, that uh, we all have in common. No, that doesn't mean every song you sing has to be like that. But it should be something we care about. And it seems to me that, that uh, another thing is that um, if a song, if, if all of our songs have to be according to the style of singing that's popular today, then we also limit ourselves because, you know, you're going to... Your kid grows up in church and then he, you know, doesn't follow Christ and 30 years later, some crisis hits in his life and he comes back to the Lord and he goes back to church and every single song is different than any of the songs he ever sang. It's There should be a certain timelessness to... These songs in worship that, that uh, I don't mean that we keep singing the same old songs. I agree that we should have new songs. And, you know, it even says in the Bible over and over, sing a new song to the Lord. The new situations, new things that happen to people. Not, not all the great songwriters are old dead people. they are great songwriters today, so you have to let them sing songs. Jordan, what were you going to say? I
1: was going to
2: say this isn't really going along with style or tune, but this is why the songs are so great because it unifies believers throughout time and geography.
0: Yes, yes. Okay, so um, now how how do you reconcile singing the old songs with singing new songs? Because eventually your repertoire is going to get too big to handle. Right? Because if you have if you're going to say, okay, we have these hundred old classic hymns that we're going to keep singing, and then we're going to add and eventually you're going to have more songs and every single week it's going to be new because you sing them so rarely. Well, it seems to me that, that the way to think about it is actually sort of the way music works in the world, too. Um when you know for most of us we could think of a few great classical music pieces of music that we are familiar with that everybody pretty much is familiar with right? and that's but at the time when those were written that was just one of you know many songs that were popular they fade but not all of them fade And so it seems to me the best mentality is to think that um, some songs will endure. It's hard to tell which songs are going to endure in in the day that it's written. But um, so we should keep connected to songs in the past. Not every song in the past, but the great ones, the ones that endure. And also learn new songs. And of course a lot of those new songs, most of them are going to fade and they're not going to be remembered. But a few of them are going to really rise above the others. And we're, they're going to become classics too. And, uh, and so that's sort of the, the operating mentality that we've had. And um, it's, it also, um, you know, we have different sources. That is, we have hymns in the hymnal we have worship songs some of the hymns actually began as worship songs and then eventually were put into the hymnal but but obviously new songs aren't going to get in the hymnal very quickly and some get in too quickly you know, like Amy Grant's El Shaddai is in our hymnal well, they put that in too quickly, it faded you know, it was so popular when they put it in that they couldn't imagine this was ever gonna fade. But it did. Nobody sings El Shaddai anymore. I'm not saying it's not a good song, it's a great song. I love El Shaddai, but it's just not something that in the community of faith has, has endured. To be as a worship song, as a worship song. So um Jesus had the parable, you know, about the man who looks into his treasure and he brings out treasures old and new. And I think that, that uh, this is a little bit of a, gives us a little paradigm for the way the church should operate when it comes to songs. Is we have, we have songs, you know, we sing songs from the first millennium and we sing songs that were written in the last few years. And uh, and that's the way it should be. Um, and that should continue. Um, and, and we're not trying to worry about whether we're... Okay, let me... There's two different mentalities that that we're trying to resist. One is, if it's not an old classic hymn, it's not worth using in the worship service. And the people who are reacting to contemporary music they often go to that place. Elizabeth Elliot used to say things that are pretty close to that you know it's like it's like all this modern all this modern songs are just trash you know that I don't think that that's the right way to think and yet on the other hand it's like anything that's not written in the last ten years maybe even less, is fuddy-duddy and people are going to laugh and it's not going to be relevant. Well, we don't care about whether everybody thinks we're with it. That's not the purpose of the church, to be with it. And if you can't come to a Christianity that is very ancient, then you're not coming to biblical Christianity. You've got to be used to old things if you become a Christian. So it's not enough to just invite people to come to the with it Christ because th- this, is, this is an old, old time religion, isn't it? Okay, any other thoughts about music? Sure.
1: I think it's helpful if you can find a song or either the tune or the words or both in, in a perfect song um, that it's almost like an earworm or something that's really catchy or something that you can just kind of keep in your heart and kind of draw out and what I mean by that is like I've noticed with my kids there's certain songs that we sing we don't even sing them very often some of the hymns I'll put music on at home, some acapella stuff, and just yesterday Hannah came down, she goes, we sing this song at church, and she just started belting out the words, and like, we don't even sing it very often. And I just thought that that was really kind of cool, that yeah. it's already in her mind, and it's already in her heart, because it's something that she,
0: Yeah.
1: it's accessible, I guess, is yep. the more the I'm looking for, and memorable, yeah, and, and that means so much more when right. You don't have to constantly, you know, you're concentrating over the word and stumbling over the the tune and the the syllables and the hymnal. But if you know it, then you can really worship a true place. Right. Stephen? I'd
0: like to follow on that because it's a very non-Western
2: view. Have a short stack of tunes. I mean, we see it in the Psalms, to the tune of the Megiddo, to the tune of you know, and it's a tune. But you could put a thousand lyrics to it, and because of, of literacy, um, and it's common in early churches, you just had a handful of tunes, right? If you listen to Jewish music, it's in the minor, right? It's the it's the one four and five, and an occasional sixth back to the fifth, back to the first, you know, and you can put a million verses. That's common in most all the religions of the world except for Western.
0: yeah it is it is a a really good feature of a great song it is that it, it's catchy on some level you know it it stays with you um there's certain songs that you would never find yourself singing but uh that's a good quality but how do you sometimes you can't judge that right away it, it it's something that grows on you but the lyrics are important too. You know, if we are going to have children learning hymns or learning songs and singing them around the house, you want lyrics that, that are worth carrying with you for your life. If you're going to memorize something, basically, you want it to be something worth memorizing, worth having in your brain. There's only a limited amount of things that we can memorize. And if they're if the lyrics are just fun or just fluff, then it's a waste of brain space. And you know, we have um there's that's one of the things that makes a hymn endure. It's it's always have to has to have a great tune, but it also has to have lyrics that have Brought many of God's people through many dark days. And you know, you hear testimonies of people like Corey Tenboom and Elizabeth Elliott who went through really dark days, and even Johnny Erickson, really dark days, and hymns were one of the things that they clung to in their desperation. And uh, hymns of, you know, songs have, have done so much good for God's people. Uh, Jason, did you raise your hand? Was you... Okay. Yeah, Mike? I have, maybe it's a question, maybe it's a statement, I don't know. But you know, Luke 2 says that suddenly there was with the angel a
2: multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest. I think, does the Bible ever talk about the angels singing? Or do they always praise God and speak? I, I wonder if singing is something... Mankind to the church. that is preserved for mankind than the church. That's something that we have this ability to do that the angels don't. Wouldn't that be a cool thing if we have access to that? Sure. Capability today, we're exercising it today for a future state where we yeah. have this method of
0: praise that um even the angels don't have. Yeah. Could be, who knows. I don't think there is anything about angels singing. At least uh, I can't come up with on a dumb head. However, when they speak, they speak in a way that's higher than ours. You know, with uh, and that's referred to several times in the Bible. But with the with the voice of an angel, you know, it's like there's something about their speaking that's loftier than ours. Okay, um, some, some churches um, don't believe in instruments. How many of you have ever been to a church that doesn't believe in instruments? And you know that the, um, the human voice is the greatest instrument. Musical, you know, musically trained people will will acknowledge that. But um, I think it seems to me that people who believe that are reacting to um, the whole concept of music, instrumental music becoming uh, something that's drawn draws attention to man instead of. Accentuating the praises of God's people. Um, You know, the the Psalms are so full of instruments, mentions of instruments in music. And yet, without without there being any indication in the New Testament that we're not supposed to use instruments anymore, they have concluded that we're not supposed to use instruments anymore. They base it on the simplicity of worship in the New Testament as opposed to the Old. But again, it seems like a little bit random to say, okay, that means this goes. Why do you get to decide what goes? It's like, um, so it seems to me that that is wrong-headed, although if I were in a community and that was the best church in the community, I'd go and I'd And I enjoy it without the instruments. So I'm not saying that somehow they're evil. I'm just saying that it seems to me an unnecessary conclusion. But it does alert us to the danger of what instruments can introduce. And there are many churches in this very community where the worship service, you can hardly hear the people sing. Because the instruments are so dominant in the worship. And I'd rather sing a cappella, which we're going to do this morning because we don't have a pianist. But uh, I'd rather do that than have the music dominated by the instruments. Okay, so that takes us through the issue of singing. And... um, one of the things, I'd like to finish next week if possible but one of the things that I just want to draw your attention to is the issue of posture in our worship. Um, And you know we did actually uh, way back in history we did a a little teaching, had a series of teachings on posture in worship. And um, and we talked about what the Bible says about posture. And we talked about verses where it says, you know, about lifting up your hands in worship. About kneeling in prayer. That's why we kneel. You know, for a long time, we thought, long time, a few the first few years of our church we thought, we, we would really like to kneel. One day we're going to have pews with kneelers so we can kneel. And then, eventually we said, why do we need kneelers? We should just kneel. So we started just kneeling, especially since we have a carpet. It'd be a little more difficult, at least for old knees, if we didn't. But um, and so we kneel. And, and uh, but hand raising, there. You know, we've had people leave our church because of hand raising, because they think, oh, this is a charismatic church. I don't want to be in a charismatic church. It's like, okay, well, I mean the fact is we're not doing this because we're charismatic, we're doing this because that's what the Bible says. So, um, I don't want to let the, the what's happening in modern day steal the richness of what the Bible tells us. So, I'm not willing to just refuse to raise my hands because some people associate it with the charismatic movement. But let me tell you one story in closing. Um, there was a guy who, um, some of you have heard the story before, there's a guy who was really eager to learn what the right posture of prayer was. And he studied the Bible, I mean, he listened to people talking and asked questions. Some people said, you know, we should stand some people said we should kneel, and some people said we should raise our hands. And, uh, and he was really praying, Lord, show me what the right posture of prayer is. And he was praying this as he walked out in a field one day. And he was looking up, and he stumbled and he fell into an abandoned well, head first. He was trapped in this well with only his feet at the surface of the, of the ground, with his hands beside him, completely trapped. God had answered his prayer. He had found the proper posture for prayer. That's the end of the story. The point is that the proper posture of prayer is desperation. Heavenly Father, thank you for the time we've had to talk today. We pray that you'd be with us in our worship this morning and enrich us as a result of these conversations. We pray in Jesus' name.